0: I'd like to preach to you today on the great impossibility. The great impossibility. We studied uh, last week Peter's second sermon from Acts chapter number three, and this morning we're heading back to Acts chapter two to actually look at his first sermon. Um, I was going to say, unfortunately, we're heading to Acts chapter two, but uh, there's no unfortunately uh, in the in the plan of God. Uh, we were praying against me being here today, but uh, that wasn't the Lord's will. So. Uh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, we looked at Peter's second sermon last week because it focused specifically on the crucifixion. And we're looking at his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon from Pentecost, because it focuses in a special way on the resurrection. We use the word impossible to mean various things. And often when we say impossible, we don't actually mean outside the realm of possibility. We mean it's more like it's difficult or it's doubtful. It's Kind of like other words we use, like unbelievable and other things where they don't really mean exactly. We say impossible. It's just, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, and you've used it like this. It's just common usage. Uh, we, we use a term in sports. It is just impossible to beat that other team. Well, actually, in sports, there is no, there is no team that's impossible to beat. It's just It's just an expression. It's just the way we use the word. Uh, you, might, you might use it in reference to uh, somebody's cooking. It is impossible to make a better cookie than my wife's or than my mom's or whatever, whoever your standard of, of the best is. Well, that's not actually true. There probably is somebody who could do a better job, but you're saying it's, it's impossible. And uh, people have said other things are impossible, and, uh, and they weren't right. For instance, there was a time when I imagine people said it's impossible for men to fly. And then along came the Wright brothers and a host of others, and and presto, men are are flying in airplanes. There was probably a time when people said, uh, if they would have thought about it, it's impossible for us to land on the moon. Uh, And yet that actually wasn't impossible. It was within the realm of possibility. But today, we're going to allow Peter to preach to us about the great impossibility. And the great impossibility from Peter today is that it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. There was no way Jesus could stay dead. There wasn't a chance. There wasn't a a remote possibility. It it wasn't even questionable. It wasn't even as if, well, we're, we're hopeful, but we're not entirely sure. You see, it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. And so this is a joyful impossibility for us to consider today. Today, we need to realize that Jesus Christ most certainly rose from the dead. And because he did, you must repent from your sin and believe him. Jesus Christ most certainly rose from the dead. We have a unique opportunity this morning. Um, Not just because every time we come to the word of God, it will speak to us. But we have a unique opportunity to come and hear a sermon that was preached only 50 days after our Lord had come back from the dead. In fact, this is the first sermon we have of the Christian church. And so it's a unique opportunity because of its timing in biblical history. It's unique because this is actually a very rare thing for us to do, to be able to go to a passage in scripture and hear a sermon. Uh, We hear you hear lots of sermons uh, week in and week out, but we don't actually have that many sermons actually recorded in the New Testament. We have really been enjoying and and have enjoyed in the past going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Last week, we studied Peter's second sermon. There are only a few other sermons that we have in the New Testament written down in any way. And so this is really a rare opportunity for us to let Peter preach to us. And what we have written down for us uh, is a sermon that that came so many years ago. That's focused on the truth that we we direct our attention to today. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's a rare it's a rare opportunity. It's also unusual and a unique opportunity because the words that we have before us this morning, unlike the words of so many other sermons, are actually inspired words. And the Holy Spirit chose that these words be written down in the book of Acts, with all of their inerrancy, with all of their perfection. We have the words that the Holy Spirit chose to write down from a sermon. And that's obviously a very unusual thing. And so it's a unique opportunity. The sermon we have in front of us is not the entire sermon. Uh, We know that for a couple reasons. Um, One, what we have before us this morning would only take about three minutes to deliver, if this were the whole sermon. And I realize that some of you might be saying, that's my kind of sermon. Uh, But... Peter actually preached at much greater length, so uh, I feel fine about preaching at much greater length as well. Uh, we, we know that because it's so short. We also know it because we get down to verse number 40, and it says that with many other words, he exhorted them and preached to them. All right. So so we're going to get the Cliff Notes version this morning, and yet the Cliff Notes version is going to drive us to the reality that Jesus Christ most certainly rose from the dead. In fact, it was impossible for him not to rise from the dead. Let me just remind us quickly where we are in the book of Acts. Acts is the great unfolding of the gospel plan going around the world. And Acts 1 started with the resurrected Lord talking to his disciples and telling them, "I want you to spread the gospel all over the world." And then he ascends. He says, "I want you to spread the gospel, but I also want you to wait for the promised Holy Spirit." And so what has happened already in Acts chapter number two is the Holy Spirit has come with great power, with a, with a sound that was kind of like a rushing wind, um, with things that looked like fire came down on the apostles that were gathered together. And then they began to speak in other languages. Right? These are the events that, is led up, that have led up to Peter's sermon. And so this is an important sermon for us because Peter is about to do exactly what Christ told him he was supposed to do. He's going to spread the gospel. This is a gospel sermon. This is about the good news. And so it's, it's helpful for us to go back and say, here's Peter. Uh, just 10 days earlier, face-to-face, Jesus said, I want you to spread the gospel. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, and then this is Peter's response. I have the Holy Spirit. People are wondering what's going on, and this is the message I'm going to preach. And so this is at the heart. This is, this is the crux of the Christian faith here in this sermon. And really, we're just going to see three relatively simple points from, from Peter's message. First of all, Jesus was crucified. Second, Jesus was raised. And third, you must repent and believe in this Jesus. It's simple, and yet it's profound, and, and we need to, to hear the words of Peter. We're going to start in verse 22. Um, Peter's sermon actually starts earlier as he explains uh, to those who are who are wondering what's happening at Pentecost, he's explaining from Joel 2 that the Holy Spirit has come just as he was promised. And so he's already unfolded that passage. And now we get to verse number 22, and he's beginning, he's going to present Jesus as the crucified one. Let's look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, right? Notice he's talking to Jewish people. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men now there's a lot of words in there and a lot of thoughts in there and if we were going to boil down that sentence to to its core to to the to the the main subject and the main verb of that sentence, the idea is Jesus was crucified or you crucified Jesus. That's that's Peter's opening statement to these men of Israel. and He says, men of Israel, hear these words. When he says hear these words, uh, he's not he's not he's not just saying uh, something for no reason. Obviously, they're going to hear these words if he keeps talking. So why does he say hear these words? He's telling them to do more than more than just Physically hear something. He's telling them, I want you to listen and I want these words to sink into your heart. And that's what we need this morning, too, right? We need to hear the words of Peter. We've read these words already. I'm going to continue to read these words, but we need to hear them this morning. In other words, actually let the truth penetrate our hearts. He says, Many of Israel, hear these words. And then he begins to present Jesus. And he says that Jesus was crucified despite God's identification. He says he was Jesus of Nazareth, a man. This is a historical person. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's a man. And then it says, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. When it says that he was attested, it has the idea that he was he was accredited. He was presented. They use this word. Sometimes they would use it for um, government office holders, um, they would also use it before that person came into office. So, for instance, we would use the term president-elect, right? He's, he's not the president yet, but he's coming. That, that's part of the idea of this word. He was attested. He, he had his stamp of approval that was already on him and something was going to happen. He was, he was attested. He was proved. And how was it that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, was attested, was proven, was identified by God? How did God do that? Well, Peter says he did it with mighty works. And wonders and signs. That word "mighty works." Uh, you might have miracles in front of you. That's the idea of, of any, any kind of miracle that Jesus would do. It was a mighty work. They used the words the word wonder," and that, that word is intended. Uh, it was used because the wonder, the miracle, was supposed to have an effect on the people who saw it, and the effect was supposed to be amazement. So that's another word for miracles. It's supposed to amaze us. And so God identified Jesus, this man of Nazareth, and he showed that he was more than just a man through miracles, through wonders, and through signs, right? That's a word that means to to point to or to signify a deeper spiritual truth, right? That was the point of Jesus' great great and miraculous deeds, even the deeds that we've been studying in the book of Matthew together. They were miracles. They were signs of power and authority, they were wonders. They were supposed to make people be amazed. They were signs. They were signposts pointing to something, to the deity of Jesus Christ. And it says that God was the one doing these things through Jesus in your midst, as you yourselves know. I mean, remember in the sermon, Peter is talking to people who had been alive when Jesus was on earth. And they had seen his miracles. And they had heard about the wonders. And they had seen the signs. And Peter says, you know this. You see, God identified this Jesus as his unique one. It's interesting that throughout the book of Acts, wonders and signs are never separate. It's never that there was just a miracle or a wonder done for the sake of doing a miracle. It's not that we're supposed to go, oh, wow, a miracle. Let's be amazed. It's a miracle and a sign. It points to something. It's interesting that the original signs and wonders movement was not about self-aggrandizing displays. The signs and wonders that Jesus did were for pointing to himself and pointing to his power and pointing to his greatness. That was the purpose. And so Peter says, look, this Jesus, he was identified by God. But this Jesus, verse, 20 through, verse 23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God. You see, Jesus was crucified despite God's identification, but according to God's plan. Look at the plan of God in verse 23. This Jesus, the one who had done all of these things that God had given him power, who identified as the Messiah, he was delivered up. Guys, remember where we've heard uh, Peter use those words before? If you were here last week, Peter talked about you delivered him over to Pilate. And here it says that God was the one who was deli- who delivered up Jesus according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God the The definite plan we can all we can all understand that right God had a plan, and that plan was definite there there was certainty god's plan was for Jesus to be delivered up and and that word definite plan is paired with another word it says definite plan and foreknowledge of God definite plan is relatively self-explanatory and and easy for us to understand the word foreknowledge though has historically taken uh, some abuse and uh and has suffered from some misunderstanding and and we need to be clear on on this because as we talk about the great impossibility the impossibility of jesus to stay dead we need to understand what what started that and what started it was the death of Jesus. I mean, that's, that's why we need a resurrection, because Jesus is dead. And so if we're going to ask ourselves, how did that happen? We need to be able to answer the question, why? Why did Jesus die in the first place? And this verse says it was because of the definite plan, and it was the foreknowledge of God. Now, there are some who would say that, that foreknowledge of God basically just means that, that because God is outside of time, he looks down through time, and he sees what people are going to do, and he sees the choices they're going to make, and then he looks at their choices and he goes, "Okay, because I know they're going to make this plan, uh, I'm going to come up with a better plan. So I know that the Jews are going to kill Jesus, and uh, so I'm going to come up with a plan. I tell you what, uh, I'll raise him back from the dead. All right? That would be a misunderstanding of the idea of foreknowledge. You see, if God foreknows something, and it's specifically of an event, what He knows is certain. You understand that? Because God." foreknew this before there ever was any time at all. And so there was a certainty that Jesus would die. What Jesus, what God foreknows, God plans. All right? And there was no way that plan was going to be altered. God planned this whole thing. It was according to his definite plan, and it was according to his foreknowledge. And he decreed this, 1 Peter one twenty tells us, this is a, a theme from Peter. He says in 1 Peter one twenty. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, since Friday, the Friday of the crucifixion, God wasn't sitting around going, man, how did how did this happen? What am I going to what am I going to do to fix this? Uh, We've got a big problem on our hands. Jesus is dead. And uh, I've got to come up with an idea. And so he spent Friday and Saturday wondering, what in the world can I do? And Sunday morning he went, aha, I've got it. I've got a great idea. We'll have a resurrection. I wish I would have thought of this sooner. All right? That's not at all the idea of foreknowledge. The idea of foreknowledge is God had this whole thing planned out already. He wasn't trying to figure out how to fix an enormous mistake. The resurrection we celebrate today was not God fixing a colossal blunder. It was all part of his perfect plan. That's what we celebrate. God's perfect plan being worked out. This was all according to the plan of God. The crucifixion was part of it, and the resurrection was part of it. It was all God's definite plan that he had already laid out. I mentioned last week, as we looked at the crucifixion, our need to understand the crucifixion accurately. And this is another piece of that puzzle that needs to be in our thinking, that when we look at the cross, we need to understand it as the plan of God working out exactly what God foreknew. This is exactly what God intended. Part of the encouragement from last week's message was was for us to know the truth of the crucifixion and to believe it, because that truth is often under attack. And I thought it was interesting, because sure enough, uh, even this week uh, on Good Friday, a man who I think we could only call a false teacher by the name of Tony Jones. He wrote an article about why the crucifixion matters. And this is what he said. Some people today might find it compelling that some great cosmic transaction took place on that day. One thousand nine hundred and eighty years ago. that God's wrath burned against his son instead of against me. All right. Tony Jones says some of you might think that this was like the great big cosmic plan of something to work out so that God would be angry at Jesus instead of being angry at me. And this was, this was his, uh, his words that he wrote, a man who has an audience of many, many people, um, American influence. I find that version of atonement theory, he calls it a theory, neither intellectually compelling, right? doesn't make sense mentally, it's not spiritually compelling, nor is it in keeping with the biblical narrative. You see, we have a problem if we say the crucifixion was part of God's plan. And it, and it was all part of his intention that his son would be the sacrifice. Because the modern mind goes, man, that's kind of a gruesome plan, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't Jesus God's son. You really mean to tell me that from before the beginning of the world, that God decided that he was actually going to sacrifice his son? What a, what a bloody decision. Uh, surely this cannot, there's got to be a better explanation for what happened. And so we try to work around it. And our minds go, man, I mean, there's got to be a better way than saying God planned this whole thing out. And that would be to completely misunderstand the crucifixion. It would be to completely misunderstand the point. See, this was all God's plan, even the death of his son. This was according to the plan of God. This was his plan of salvation. Jesus was crucified according to the plan of God. It was set. It was set in stone. God knew exactly when it was going to happen, and he knew why it was going to happen, and he planned the whole thing. So, you say, it sounds kind of like God's in charge, and God's doing all of this. Look what Peter says. Notice the beautiful combination of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Peter says, this was all according to God's plan in verse 23. But this Jesus, who was delivered up according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, you crucified, and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Peter doesn't go, this is all God's plan, so uh, don't worry about it. Uh, God's the one to blame. Peter Peter sticks out his finger with bold authority. He looks at the very people who only, only days before had said, crucify, crucify. And Peter said, you killed him. You crucified him. You're responsible. You see, Jesus was crucified according to God's plan, but he was crucified by sinful men. God's purpose was redemption. Man's purpose was murder. Peter says, you crucified and killed him and you did it by the hands of lawless men. And so. Peter wraps up all the sin, the sinners and the whole situation. He says, you Jewish people, you're responsible for killing him. And you did it by the hands of lawless men. When he says lawless men, do you know who he's referring to? He's referring to the Romans. He's referring to the Gentiles. And so he wraps up everybody. Sinful men killed Jesus according to God's definite plan. Now, it's interesting that Peter says that it's the Jews' fault. He says, you are the one who crucified and killed Messiah. And there is a a political correctness today that says, we ought not say that the Jews killed Jesus, right? Uh, Peter doesn't know anything about that kind of political correctness. He's standing in front of them. He's looking at them eye to eye, and he says, you did it. You killed Jesus. And at the same time, he says, you did it through those Gentile people. Everyone is to blame for this crucifixion. It was sinful men, all right? And it is appropriate for us to realize that Jesus was crucified because of sin. And so if we're sinners, sinners who have been saved then he was crucified because of our sin, there is no escaping this. Jesus was crucified. He was crucified despite God's identification. He was crucified right in keeping with God's plan. And he was crucified by sinful people. You see, the great impossibility begins with a great tragedy. It begins with a great murder. We need to know why Jesus died. We have to know that. And yet, the great news for us today that Peter is going to go on and preach is that you killed Jesus, but Jesus was raised. Verse number 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because Now, see this because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not it was not in the realm of possibility for Jesus to stay dead. There was no way this was going to happen. Jesus was raised and it was impossible for death to have the victory. And Peter is going to go on and explain and to clarify and to prove what he's saying. But I think it's good for us to just dwell on that thought. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. It says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It's an in- interesting word. Uh, it's, it's actually pangs of death is a word that refers to the, the pangs of birth, the agony that comes along with birth, right? There, there is agony and suffering and pain that comes along with death. And and God raised up Jesus and He loosed Him from that because you see it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. It it wasn't possible. And and however we use or, or misuse that word, we need to understand that, that word of impossibility in its fullest sense uh, in this passage. It could not happen. What we celebrate today is remembrance that it was impossible, not just not just that it was improbable for Jesus to stay dead not that not that we wished that he that he hadn't it was actually impossible for him to stay dead that's what we celebrate today that's what we remember the great impossibility that Jesus would be dead peter points to the certainty of jesus resurrection and he does it first of all by pointing to scripture okay it was impossible for death to have the victory and the resurrection was completely certain and it was completely certain In the first case, because of scripture, look at verse 25. He says it wasn't possible for him to be held by it for. All right. That means he's going to give you an explanation for David says concerning him. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And he quotes it just as it appears in the Septuagint, which is the word for the Greek version of the Old Testament. All right. They had they had a translation of the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew and it was in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And so Peter quotes the Septuagint and he says, here's why. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. It was impossible because of the promise of scripture. Let's let's look at this promise from scripture. Here's what David said, "I saw the Lord always before me, for he is in my right hand that I may not be shaken." Right? So we see the Lord, it's referring to God. He's he's always before me, David says, he's at my right hand. I don't have to be shaken. I don't have to be afraid. In fact, not only do I not only am I not shaken verse 26. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, right? So there's joy because of the presence of God. My flesh also will dwell in hope, right? There's hope because of the presence of God. And look at verse 27. And here's the promise that that Peter is pointing to. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. It says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Now, that word Hades is not talking about the abode of the dead. It's actually talking about the grave or what you might see in your Old Testament as Sheol. You've probably heard that word before. It it means the grave. Uh, Everyone's going to Sheol. And and David said in Psalm 16, you're not going to abandon my soul to the grave. And you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. It's not going to happen. Your Holy One, and in my Bible that's capitalized, and I think that's entirely appropriate because Peter and is saying that David was pointing to Jesus as the holy one. He says your holy one's not going to see corruption. Verse 28 says you have made known to me the paths of life, not the paths of death, the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All right? The paths of life and the presence of God are resurrection realities. They're resurrection realities. And uh, perhaps you say, I mean I read Psalm 16, and, uh, and I didn't know that it was talking about Jesus. I, I kind of thought it was talking about David because David wrote it, and it sure looks like it's talking about David. You say, how did Peter come up with this? And, uh, and why don't we necessarily go through the Psalms and try to see Christ everywhere? All right? Uh, let me just encourage you uh, that the best—you know who the best interpreter of Scripture is? The absolute best interpreter of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, Psalm 16— is pointing to Jesus, all right? And there are other times in our New Testament where the Holy Spirit specifically says this Old Testament passage is pointing to Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit does that, we go, okay, done, done deal. If, if the Holy Spirit says it's pointing to Jesus, it's pointing to Jesus. Now, I'm no Holy Spirit, and, uh, and I'm no Peter either. And so I might approach the Old Testament with, uh, with caution in seeing Jesus behind every bush or every stone, as some people have tried to do. But the point here is, this is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Psalm 16, all right? And and this is how Peter interprets it, all right? This is an interpretation you can trust in this sermon, all right? You can trust this. Look at verse 29. He says, brothers, talking to them as Jewish brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, all right? He says, look, we all know this. David, the patriarch, it's actually one of the only times David is ever called a patriarch, but he says, uh, David... He died, and we all know that. And he was buried, and we we all know that. And in fact, his grave is still with us today, and we all know that. Um, In fact, back in in Peter's day, they actually knew where David's tomb was, and you could go there. And Peter's point is, uh, David was most certainly abandoned to the grave. Uh, His body is absolutely inside this grave. In fact... uh, It's actually just the pieces of David's body because he's seeing corruption. I mean, David's body was corrupting away inside the grave. No doubt about it. And Peter's point is an obvious one. You guys all know this. His grave's right there. All right. He could have pointed to it. They could have walked over to it. David's inside here. What's, What's left of David is inside here. And so he says, we need to interpret this passage. Verse 30 says, being therefore a prophet. All right. Did you know that David not only was a king, he was also a prophet. Being a prophet and knowing. What did David know? He knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Davidic promise, right? The promise that God made to David that one of David's children would, would live and rule on the throne forever and ever. Right? And David knew that promise, and he believed that promise. And because David knew that, he, verse number 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see what Peter is basing his confidence that, that it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead? He says it had to have been impossible because David already prophesied that the Christ would have to raise. Clearly, David wasn't talking about himself. That's the point. Clearly, David was not saying, I'm not going to see corruption. My body's going to be free from the grave. He's clearly pointing to Jesus, the Christ. And so Peter says, you can be certain that Jesus was resurrected because of the promise of Scripture. It is impossible for Scripture to fail. It is impossible for any of God's good promises to be thwarted. So it was impossible because he had already promised this resurrection. It was impossible for anything else but this to happen. You see that? You see where the confidence is? God promised it. Scripture promised it. Then it's going to be true. That's absolute certainty. And that's why this is the great impossibility that Jesus would stay dead. Okay? So, he says, verse number 32, This Jesus God raised up. He says, this particular one, the one that we're talking about, this Christ, this Messiah, the one that the Jews just wanted to have out there in in Never Never Land, Messiah, not any particular identification. Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't just say some Messiah. He says, the Messiah, this Jesus. All right? He's identifying the man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. And he says... This Jesus God raised up. There it is again. God did this. He raised him up. And he says, not only was the promise of scripture makes this certainty, but he also says there's witness, the witness of the apostles. God raised him up. And of that, we all are witnesses. When he says we all, he's talking about the apostles. He says, this thing is absolutely certain because we're all witnesses of this. I mean, here's Peter, a guy who knew Jesus died, who saw the crucifixion. And then he actually saw the resurrected Lord. He saw him and he says, I'm just witness. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you this is real. I'm telling you this actually happened. The Christ that David prophesied about was Jesus. And now the apostles add their witness to that Old Testament prophecy. So Jesus' resurrection was certain because of the promise of Scripture because of the witness of the apostles. And now look at the guarantee of the ascension or the exaltation. Here's another reason we know the resurrection is sure. Okay, Not only the prophecy of Old Testament, not only the witness of the apostles, but look what God did. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Right? He's talking about the ascension. Christ has returned to God because of that, being therefore exalted. And what else happened? Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the Spirit. And what he did, verse 33 says, is he turned around and he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Right, this is Peter's explanation of what's happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter's theological explanation is Jesus went back to heaven and the Father gave him the Holy Spirit and he poured out the Holy Spirit on his disciples. That's what's going on at Pentecost. Jesus is giving the promised Holy Spirit. You say, what does that have to do with proving the resurrection? Well, Peter's going to go on to explain. He says in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a verse from Psalm 110, and this verse is used all throughout the New Testament for Jesus. Uh, Jesus applied this verse to himself in Mark 12, as well as in Luke 20. Paul in First Corinthians 15 says this verse is about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1:13 says this; these words from David are referring to Jesus. All right. So you go. All right. Another another scriptural promise. Uh, so what? Well, the point is, David was not the ascended Lord. Jesus was, and as the ascended Lord, he could return to the Father, and the Father would give him the promised Spirit. So where did the Holy Spirit come from on the day of Pentecost? It came from Christ. Christ poured him out. Therefore, Christ must not be dead. That, that's the argument. Christ can't be dead because he poured out the Holy Spirit. Certainly, David couldn't pour out the Holy Spirit. But the one who was exalted at the right hand of the Father, he's one who could pour out the Holy Spirit. Okay? So actually, the exaltation, the ascension of God, uh, the, the ascension of Jesus, is proof of his resurrection. The 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 reality of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was given is proof that we have a resurrected Lord. He's not dead. He's alive. In fact, he's so alive that he's giving out gifts, the promise of the Holy Spirit to his people. We don't have a dead Lord. He's resurrected because it's impossible for him to stay dead. He already promised the church that he would give the Holy Spirit. How's he going to do that if he's dead? He's not dead. He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's giving the Holy Spirit. This is more assurance that it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. This is another great reality. And so Peter says in verse 36: Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain, all right? Know this for sure, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He says, when he says God has made him both Lord and Christ has, God has exalted in reality and power what Christ already was. He has made this a reality. He is Lord and Christ. And that's a truth of the resurrection. He is Lord and he is Christ. He is Messiah. It's a relatively simple message. Jesus was crucified and Jesus was raised. But on this hangs the entire Christian witness. In fact... The great impossibility demands a response. Look at verse number 37. Now, when they heard this, these Jews, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This first sermon that came on Pentecost that preached that Jesus was crucified and then preached that he was raised. It had an effect on people. It says they were cut to the heart and that's a that's a very vivid it's a it's a very alive word it It actually talks about what would happen like in a sword fight or in a spear fight when somebody penetrates the armor and deals a death blow, in other words, that sword cut all the way in, and there was no recovering That's the word that is used here It's not that these Jews threw up their arms and it was just a glancing blow and and whew, that that sermon kind of had some heat to it and it, it got me a little bit. No, the point was this thing cuts to the heart like I can't get away from this sermon. I I can't escape this truth. We're saying that it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. And so if that's true, then I'm cut to the heart because we crucified him. You know, there's something very, very right about guilt over sin. We live in a society that wants to say that the guilt is always bad, and you just need to escape your guilt, right? So whatever it takes to escape your guilt feelings, whatever your guilt feelings are over. You need to take a little more medicine, or you need to have a little more vacation, but whatever you do, not feel guilty about anything, all right? Uh, it's interesting that this message, it produced its desired effect, which was, I'm cut to the heart. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I have a problem, and there's no escaping that reality. I'm cut to the heart. So what are we going to do? It would be it would be good for us, and it would be right for us to be struck with the weight of sin and lostness. That instead of instead of saying, I mean, sometimes I feel kind of bad about sin, and that's a terrible thing, I need to stop feeling bad. I mean, these people needed to be under the weight of the conviction. They needed the guilt that would drive them to Christ. It was right for them to go, it's true, we crucified Jesus. And if it's also true that Jesus rose from the dead, then we did wrong. You see, the, the, the right response to this great impossibility is that we must repent and believe in Jesus. That's exactly what Peter says. What shall we do? Verse 38. And Peter says to them, what you need to do is repent. That's what you need to do. If it's true that Jesus was crucified... And you all know that it is. And if it's also true that Jesus rose from the dead, then what you need to do is repent right now. Right now, you need to turn from your sin. That, that word of repenting, which means go in a whole different direction. Instead of these Jewish people saying, we crucified Jesus and that was a good decision. They turn their back on that and say, how horrible was our sin that we, by the hands of sinful people, we killed our Messiah. We killed the Holy and Righteous One. What were we doing? What, a, what an awful thing that was. How sinful of us to reject our creator. How wrong it was for us to deny the one who made us. Man, we repent. We turn from that. Instead of saying crucify, we say, I, I'm going to turn in trust and belief. That's, that's the same response that the resurrection still has on us today. I mean, beloved, if the resurrection is true, we have to turn from our sin. Because that means that Jesus was no ordinary man. That meant that that the crucifixion was not just something sad. It actually means that something was happening at the crucifixion. Our sin was being paid for, and he was raised because he's the Lord and he's Christ. And so who else would we trust in? He's our Messiah, and the resurrection proves it. The resurrection teaches us we must repent and turn to him, not to ourselves, to him, this crucified and then resurrected one. We must repent. Peter says to them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This verse has often been twisted for people to to teach that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. And that somehow this verse teaches baptismal regeneration is the fancy name for that baptismal salvation. So if you haven't been baptized then you're not a believer. Now, we need to understand this morning that the message of baptism is is closely connected to the preaching of salvation in Acts. Okay, there's no getting around that over and over again. The disciples said you need to believe in Jesus. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. I mean, we're not saying these things don't go hand in hand. But scripture never presents baptism as a means of salvation. And it's not doing so in this verse either. Right. You say, well, I don't see any explicit call to belief here. It just says repent. Well, These people are called believers down in verse 44. And there's the assumption if you're going to repent, I mean, if these Jewish people who who just killed Jesus these 53 days ago, if they repent, then obviously they have had a total change of belief. Their whole worldview has shifted. So belief is is just assumed and repentance. And then the action of baptism is is the necessary response of somebody who says instead of identifying with the Jewish people who are saying I should crucify him. I'm going to identify myself with Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the repent is actually a plural word. It says, you all need to repent. All right? I know as soon as I say plural word, uh, that breakfast is making you feel even more sleepy. All right, But you need to understand this. All right, Repent is to all of you. All of you need to repent. And the interesting thing is that be baptized is a singular word. Say, okay, uh, still not making any sense, but, big whoop-de-doo all right you all need to repent and individually you need to be baptized all right just in changing from a plural to a singular there's already the hint that these two things are are not are are not the same idea he didn't say you all repent and you all be baptized so there's already a distinction in these two just because he says you all need to repent and and individually you need to be baptized not only that, not only is that an argument saying these two aren't identical, all right? Repentance is not identical with baptism. They're not the same thing. There's also um, the very good possibility when we read, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that we're not, we're not talking about the purpose. The, the purpose of baptism is not for the forgiveness of sins. Rather, it's on the ground or on the basis of. And I think the best way of understanding this verse is repentance is at the head of this verse. All right. You need to repent. And that repentance is going to lead to a bunch of other realities. It has to lead to baptism. I mean, if you're if you are a believer and Peter's telling us to Jewish believers, but the same is true for us. If you're a believer, you've got to be baptized. It, it's it's going to happen. All right. For repentant ones. You're also going to have forgiveness of sins and you will also receive What else? the gift of the Holy Spirit, all right? All of, those, all of those things flow from the fountainhead of repentance, all right? So repent, turn to God, and, and all the rest of these things will be a reality in your life, all right? We are not believers because we have gone through some spiritual ritual. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian today, it is only because you have placed your faith in the work that Jesus Christ did, in him crucified and in the resurrection, we don't have a resurrection we don't have a christ to believe in if you don't correctly understand the crucifixion as him paying for your sins it doesn't matter that he was raised if he didn't accomplish what he said he accomplished on the cross the whole package must be put together verse 39 peter goes on to say the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself when he says the promise he's talking about the promised holy spirit he says it's for you, and it's for your children. It's, it's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the people that are in that room at Pentecost. The promised spirit is for all of you. In fact, it's also for all who are afar off. I definitely think that's Peter pointing to the Gentiles. In fact, anyone want to guess where Peter got this description? If you are here last week and you're guessing Isaiah, then that was a great guess because it's Isaiah who talked about the gospel and the promise coming to the people who are afar off because Peter's mind was saturated with the teaching of Isaiah and here it shows up again just like it showed up in last week's sermon here it is in this week's sermon Peter says this promise is for all those who are afar off it's for us too everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and then we see the amazing effect of this sermon verse 40 with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them and he said save yourselves from this crooked generation these these twisted stubborn, stiff-necked generation. You need to save yourself from them. You need to turn a new direction. You need to be saved from them. And he said that with many other words. And so verse 41 says, those who received his word, Peter's word, they were baptized. So they received, they accepted, they believed, they agreed. All right, this is true. And so those people were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On this day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection on this Sunday. And this day was a Sunday. The church multiplied by about 26 times in one moment. They went from right around 120 believers to 3,120 believers in a moment. And they did it because of the gospel message that was preached to them. Peter told them about the gospel events. He told them about the crucifixion. He told them about the resurrection. He said, there are these events you need to know about the gospel. He, he told them about the gospel witnesses. He said the Old Testament witnessed to this resurrection. And he said, we as apostles in the New Testament, we witness to this resurrection. He told them about the gospel promises. Promises that had been made in the Old Testament to David. Promises that were fulfilled in the New. And he also told them about the gospel conditions. You need, you need to believe this message. And so Peter presents Jesus as the historical Man And he presents the crucifixion and the resurrection as historical realities that have extreme theological significance. They have meaning. They are for now. They are contemporary. Jesus Christ was crucified and Jesus Christ was raised. And because of that, because of what we celebrate at Easter on Resurrection Sunday, we must repent and believe in this Jesus. If, if you believe those first two things, Jesus was crucified. And Jesus was raised. You can't do anything else except repent from your sin. Nothing else would follow. The great impossibility that Jesus would stay, that he would be dead, it demands that we repent. It demands it. We don't have an option. And so today, let me encourage you. If you are a believer, you need to know the full truth of the crucifixion. We talked about it last week. We've returned again to it this week. And, and Peter provides another piece of the puzzle when it comes to the crucifixion, that this was all part of God's masterful plan. This needs to be re- a reality in our lives, that we know the full truth of the crucifixion. Why did it happen? What does it mean? What is its significance? We need to be cross-centered people. We need to know the full truth. It will help us think accurately about God. It will help us think accurately about his plans. We need to understand the crucifixion. But as Peter said, and as we must reiterate today, the great impossibility of Jesus' death and staying dead, it demands a response. It demands belief. And and really, you only have two options as people who are sitting here today. You can either say, I believe it. I believe this message. I believe that there was a man named Jesus who was crucified, and he died. And he did not stay dead. I I believe that. I will trust in that. I will trust in that even though I have never seen somebody come back from the dead. Even though I know that's outside the realm of my experience, outside the realm of my thinking. I'm going to look at scripture and I'm going to say, this is true. And my response is going to be, I believe this. In fact, I'm going to place all of my confidence in this Jesus. And I'm going to say, man, there's no way for me to achieve heaven on my own. There is there is no way for me to find salvation myself. I need someone who is more powerful than death and who is more powerful than sin, and I'm going to believe him. Or, you can have a response of doubt that says, "That's not very scientific that people come back from the dead. That's not very true to my experience. Uh, I'm willing to go along to a certain point. There there was a guy named Jesus. Uh, he probably was crucified." Uh, and it's a good thing he was a good example because now he's dead, all right? Those are your options. You'll either believe or or you'll doubt. And Peter's message is, you must believe. You must repent. You must turn from your sin. You need to trust these realities. Trust that the man named Jesus died on a cross for your sin, and then he rose because it proved that he's the Lord, and it proved that he's the Messiah. And if you're not going to trust in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, You need to find a new Messiah, okay? If Jesus of Nazareth is still in the grave, then we're still looking for the Messiah. Those are our options this morning. We either believe or we doubt. This great impossibility also demands a response of worship from us as believers. We we need to remember this great victory. We need to remember that there was no way that Jesus was going to stay in the grave. We need to remember it day in and day out. We need to remember it on the Lord's Day, a a day that we set aside. And one of the reasons we meet on Sundays is because that's the day we remember our Christ rose victoriously from the grave. And it's great for us to celebrate um, during this week and today in a special way. It's great for us to focus our minds on the resurrection. That's appropriate and that's right. And yet the resurrection as a reality has to sink into our into our thinking all the time. Because if we don't have a resurrected Christ, we have no Christ at all. If we have turned from our sins to trust this Christ and he's still dead, then all that trust doesn't amount to a hill of beans. We have to have a resurrected Christ. That has to be something that that we dwell on, that, that informs our thinking, and that drives our worship. When we gather Sunday in and Sunday out, we gather to worship a raised one. We gather to worship the one who is stronger than death. We gather to worship the one who is stronger than sin. He's stronger than Satan. This is the one, the historical real one, Jesus, who we worship. And the resurrection drives that worship. And one last thing for you to consider today. Because of the resurrection, you should overcome sin this week. You say, "Okay, I I was tracking with the whole we should worship and we should believe, but what's the point of overcoming sin this week? Because Jesus rose from the dead, he guaranteed that he was stronger than death. And do you know why all men die? All men die because all men sin. sin is, death is the natural ramification of sin. It's going to happen. The wages of sin is death. And when Jesus conquered death, he guaranteed that he was stronger than sin. And the resurrection itself is a proof that you can overcome sin in your own life. Because, you see, you have the power of the resurrected Lord. You you don't have to sin this week. You don't have to sin today. You don't have to sin tomorrow. You can overcome sin because your trust is in the resurrected one. There's no need for it. We sin because we choose to sin, not because we have to sin. Because we are a people who are identified, who are one with the power of the resurrected Lord. And that guarantees us that we can overcome sin. So... Are you struggling? Have you been struggling with a sin that has been nagging at you and you have fought it on and off again and on and off again and you hate your sin and yet you find yourself struggling again and again and again? What you need to do is come back to the reality of the resurrection and realize that your Lord has the power over sin. And if you are one with him, then you don't have to sin anymore. If we believe the resurrection as a people, then we will be a people who overcome sin in our daily lives. Because this victory is ours as well. We'll overcome sin in this life, and we'll have the great hope of the life to come. Do you know why we anchor our hope that there is an eternity to come? Do you know why we anchor our hope that those who have already died are with our, are with our God? It's because there's a resurrection day. There is an impossibility. It is impossible for Jesus to stay dead, and it is impossible for those who are His to not have that same power of resurrection. What we celebrate today is the victory, the power of Jesus over death and sin. He was crucified, but he was raised. That is good news for us today and every day of our Christian lives. Let's all pray. God in heaven, we are so thankful. That there wasn't even a chance that Jesus would stay dead. We are so thankful that this was certain and sure and guaranteed. That this Jesus who we worship as your son and our savior today. He is the victorious one. I pray that you would. You would allow your word to do its work in, in our hearts That that our belief and our confidence in these truths would never be more sure, more unshakable than they are now, that we would continue to deepen in our understanding of the crucifixion and its significance and in our bedrock confidence in this reality. I pray that you would please do your work. If there is someone here today and they have never placed their confidence in Jesus as the crucified and then resurrected one, if they've been trusting any other power Besides the power of one who can even overcome death, that you would convict them, that they would turn in repentance, that they would turn to Christ instead of away from him. As a people who are Christ today, we delight in lifting up Jesus and saying he is the Messiah who is the resurrected one. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our lives. He is the one who guarantees that we, too, can overcome sin daily and that one day we, too, will have resurrected bodies. We delight in the truth of the resurrection today. And we pray to you in the name of Jesus, not a dead Jesus, but our living Lord, who is even in heaven now interceding for us. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.